Hey everyone, this is David Grams with Valiant Ministries International. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I hope it edifies, inspires, and grows you up in God's will for your life. A new episode is published every Wednesday, so be sure to tune in every week. I'd love to know how this ministry is impacting your life, so feel free to let me know by going to valiantmi.com contact or by posting a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at valiantmi.com give. Go to Second uh, Thessalonians if you catch your Bible. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. Now, most of Second Thessalonians is an epistle Paul wrote to the church about the end times. So we're going to start reading Second Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 10. We're going to read just verse 10 here. It says that when he, Jesus, comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Okay, so Jesus is going to come the day of the Lord to be glorified in what? In his saints. So, if Jesus can't be glorified in his saints at the second coming, he isn't being glorified the way he should. So, the reason why this is so important to understand when it comes to making ourselves ready is that our, what Jesus created us for, and this is what Paul said in Ephesians 1, I believe verses 5 and 6, he said, he made us to be to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So he created us to be the very thing that glorifies him. In fact, the Bible says that we actually are the glory of Christ. Now, the word glory is a word that is used exclusively to describe the beauty of God. So, for example, one of the things that the Bible says about the difference between man and woman and their created purpose is that it says that woman is the glory of man. So the glory of something, the, the greatest beauty, is what glory means. So the Bible is saying that the woman is the beauty of man. The woman is mankind's best foot forward. So when God wants to show the beauty of mankind, he uses woman to do it. So if mankind is then the glory of God and Jesus is glorified in his saints, then that means when God wants to show himself to the world, his best foot forward is mankind. So he made us four. People are the purest and clearest picture of the nature of God. At least that's what we were made for. God could have shown himself just by this amazing temple that the Jews built. He could have glorified that temple. He could have made a house of bricks and stone and made that the image of himself. But he decided no. I want to make people the purest picture of who I am. So to say that Jesus is glorified in his saints means that God has made us, the church, the beauty of Christ that is manifest when he returns. So without his bride, Jesus isn't glorified like the groom should be, like he should be. For the bride to make herself ready means that we will be lifted up, exalted, magnified as the bride of Christ. Just like whenever you, in, in any wedding, traditionally speaking, that we hold and the bride walks down the aisle and what does everybody do? They all turn around they watch the bride walk down the aisle. Everybody in the audience is like the world. So when we're the bride of Christ, we're so beautified, exalted, that the whole world turns around and watches us pursue Jesus. So when he returns... 
they will have been seeing the anticipation of Christ the entire process of our lives. So then when the bride and the groom meet at the second coming, it's like this. It's this final climax. But they should have been seeing, they should have been seeing us. They should have seen us being magnified and exalted the entire time because that's what God wants for his bride. That's how a wedding works. Everybody looks at the bride when she walks down the aisle. That's the way it's supposed to work. So, okay. So we're going to read what's called the parable of the wheat and tares. Matthew 13, and we're going to read, starting verse 24, Matthew 13, 24. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while the men, but while the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go to, then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, now let's skip to verse 36, Matthew 13, 36. This is the, the parable explained. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. That was a lot, but... In summary, parable of the wheat and tares, Jesus sows us into the world. We grow, then the devil comes and sows tares, and they grow together with Christians, the sons of the kingdom. So here's what you have to understand. Most Christians don't really notice this. If you look up the Greek word for a tear, it's a toxic plant that if you eat it, it looks just like wheat. If you eat it, eat the fruit that it produces, the head of the grain, it'll kill you, it's so toxic. So these tares are just weeds, and what's so interesting about it is that these tares, if, and this actually happened when there was rival farmers in Jesus' day, if you wanted to destroy this farmer's crop, you could take these tares after he had just sown his wheat into the ground, sow tares, these weeds, all over the soil, and then they would grow up together. And you cannot tell the difference between wheat and tare until the end of the harvest. Can't tell the difference totally wrecked the harvest. And so when Jesus says that if you tried to uproot a tear, what happens with tares is they're, they're so, if you just look at how they work, they just, they're just they're an evil plant. It's really funny. But basically, the roots of these tares get entangled with the, with the wheat. They intertwine themselves with the wheat. So if you try to pull up the tear, the wheat comes up with it. And so here's the interesting. A name that was given to a tear in Jesus' day was false grain. That was the nickname it was given, false grain. So here's what a lot of Christians miss. A tear and a wheat is not the difference between a Christian and non-Christian. Jesus said the sons of the wicked one and then the sons of the kingdom. What's the difference? 
A tear is false grain, looks like grain, but it's not. The devil doesn't kill Christianity with atheism. He kills Christianity with counterfeit Christianity. That's the difference between a wheat and a tear. So, when the devil wants to entangle his philosophies and his ways into the church, he doesn't use the philosophies of the world. He doesn't use atheism. He doesn't use denial of God. He uses counterfeit Christianity. It looks like truth as much as possible. He gets that entangled with the church. And then here's what happens. You have a counterfeit Christian, looks like Jesus except in the ways that really matter. And the world will see this image of Christianity that's a combination of grain and false grain. And what ends up happening is the world, somebody who was offended by a counterfeit Christian, they will then throw the whole name of Christianity under the bus. They'll uproot the wheat and the tare, and they cast it all out because they don't want anything to do with Christianity, all because there was some false grain that offended them. Hypocrisy is a tear. It's a false grain. It's naming the name of Christ, but it's accepting the confession of Christianity, but not the commission of Christianity. So then hypocrisy comes. It looks like Jesus, except in every way that it matters. So then that tear grows up with the wheat, Somebody gets angry by how some hypocritical Christian treated them, and they try to uproot that tear from their lives, and they say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And the whole church is thrown under the bus because of false grain. That's how the devil kills Christianity. Counterfeit. Counterfeit version of it. So, now here's another distinction we've got to make here. You can't tell the difference between grain and a tear until the end of the harvest. So here's what you've got to understand. Jesus said the end of the harvest is the last days, the days right before the coming of the Son of Man. That's when the final harvest is, when the angels gather every Christian. So what he's saying here is that when the last days come, there's going to be this time where the tares and the wheat are exposed. And you can tell the difference between the two. Because right up until that fruit, right up until the head of grain appears in the stalk, a tear looks just like a stalk of wheat. Can't tell the difference. And the actual head of grain that grows, again, that like I said, this, this plant is totally evil. Like it, it's like this thorny, prickly head of grain. Just, it looks gross, honestly. So right up until the days before Jesus comes, you won't be able to tell the difference between Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. Now, if we look at the church today. Any person who's denied Christ, rejected Christianity, whatever, you ask them about their reason for doing so, they will always say, most of the time, because some Christian treated me this way because this happened to me because I was raised in some you know, Roman Catholic household and I just was fed this hypocritical religion and all that stuff. They usually uprooted the wheat with the tear because there was that false grain that looked like Jesus but wasn't. So, and Jesus, who's the Lord, the master over this field of wheat, is saying that before he comes to gather in the harvest, there has to be a distinction between the wheat and the tare. And until you can tell the difference between a Christian and a counterfeit Christian, the harvest isn't ripe. Because what they would do at the harvest is they'd cut the tares down with the wheat and they had to pick the tares out. It, it was a painstaking process. It took forever. If you wanted to have a harvest of grain, you couldn't uproot the tares. You had to wait till the end of the harvest, cut everything down, go into every stock, 
every bundle and pull out the tears one by one. You can imagine how difficult that'd be for a big field of grain. And so Jesus is saying, when the harvest comes, there will be a time when you can clearly distinguish the difference between a wheat and a tear, between a Christian and a counterfeit Christian. And until that day comes, the harvest isn't ripe. So Jesus can't return. He can't come together and can't come together in his harvest until there's a distinct difference between Christian and counterfeit Christian. Because that's when the fruit appears. Okay, is this making sense so far? You guys kind of seeing this? Okay. The bride is not ready, and Christ cannot come until the true church is elevated and bears fruit that distinguishes it from the sway of counterfeit Christianity. So until the real church, until the true bride starts bearing fruit, starts living a life that distinguishes it from counterfeit Christianity, then the bride is not ready and Jesus can't come. Until true Christians stand out from counterfeit ones, the harvest isn't ready to be gathered. In other words, Christ can't come. So ultimately, here's the deal. When it comes to bearing fruit, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. If the world looks at, just for example, a group of 10 people who name the name of Christ, and if they are given the opportunity to look at how each of these Christians live, and then at the end of, let's say, a week, all these unbelievers are gathered and they say, all right, now you tell us which ones out of these 10 were real Christians and which ones weren't. If the world has a difficult time telling the difference between Christian and counterfeit Christian, we're not bearing fruit. We're not real grain yet. So what we need to understand is that the Bible teaches that the world, when what the calling on the church actually, this is in Colossians chapter 1, that will be considered wholly blameless, above reproach, beyond criticism in the sight of the world. Philippians 2, I mentioned this verse a lot, but Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It says the church is supposed to be without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, blameless in the sight of the world. So what distinguishes grain from false grain, wheat from tare, is that the world can look at our lives and see that the true church is walking like the one they say they believe in. And the false church is the one that names the name of Christ but doesn't live like they believe that. So before Jesus can come, there has to be that time where the fruit appears in the head of the plant that allows a person to tell the difference between a wheat and tear. Until that day comes, the harvest isn't ready, and Jesus can't come. So, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time just praying for this calling in the church, because once I started discovering this, I just realized, man, the church is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on Jesus to come and rescue them out of the world, but... That's not what the Bible teaches. This is an end times teaching from Christ. And he said, 
He's not going to send his angels to gather us for the rapture until there's a difference between wheat and tare. And if you ask anyone who's rejected Christianity in the world today, most won't be able to tell the difference between Christian and counterfeit Christian. They won't. So the harvest isn't ready. So we're not waiting on Christ to rescue us. He's waiting on us. And I mentioned last week that one of the things that the Holy Spirit showed me was that as soon as the bride is ready, he's coming. And we also talked about how there's, there's a lot of missionaries and evangelists that God is raising up that are being sent to the nations to preach the gospel. But the rapture doesn't come when every nation has heard the gospel. That's one side of the qualification. The other side is that the bride is ready. So it's not just that we allow every ear to hear the gospel. It's that those who have heard, those who have accepted Jesus and have made him their Lord, are a bride that's made ready for the groom. And so when the nations have heard and the bride is ready, that's when he comes. We're putting so much emphasis on trying to get the gospel out so every ear can hear in hopes that if I fund enough missionaries and evangelists, then Jesus will come to rescue me. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not even close. It says, once the gospel is heard as a witness for every nation, and when the bride is ready, when the church, when those who have accepted Christ start getting dressed or when they are dressed, that's when the second coming can take place. And you'll miss this if you read through Scripture focusing on all the ways in which we can just get the gospel out there. But if you read, for example, this parable of the wheat and tares, I didn't, I didn't see this until recently. I didn't, because I thought it was just another parable about Jesus saying, you know, the difference between Christian and non-Christian. He's not talking about the difference between non-Christian and Christian. He's talking about the difference between a real church and a fake church. And he said, I can't come until the harvest is fully ready. So let's apply this to right now, us, our lives. I said this last week that a ready bride is naturally a powerful witness. So, my priority should not be evangelism, trying to be bold, trying to share the gospel. That should not be my priority. If evangelism or trying to grow in competence and sharing the gospel becomes reason for me to neglect being conformed to the image of Jesus in my personal and private life, then I'm only seeing one side of the coin. Because Jesus can't come until the gospel has been preached and the bride's ready. So my priority is always supposed to be being conformed to the image of Jesus when no one's looking. And when I am in a place of health and wholeness in private, then I'm in a heart posture that will enable me to preach a gospel that's in agreement with the life I live in private. So, I mentioned this last week, but don't, please don't try to get better at sharing the gospel if it's not something that has a foundation in the life you live behind closed doors. Because otherwise the gospel becomes a lie. Now every single Christian is that one stalk of grain. And when you look at a field for a harvest, they don't all grow up at exactly the same pace. Some are shorter than others. Some are green longer than others. You can, look, you can see this in any field, any garden, anything. They grow at different paces. It's the same way with the church. Every Christian is one stock of grain. 
Some grow faster than others. Some are ripened faster than others. But until every stock of grain, until every Christian produces that fruit at the end of the harvest that distinguishes them as being true Christian in the midst of false Christian, harvest isn't ready. So now some Christians or some people will think at this point, well, there's so many people that are Christians and so many people I think are going to go to heaven and so many people, and I know God's merciful, and I believe all that. God's compassionate. 100% believe that. But this can cause some Christians to think that, does that mean every single person who claims they're a Christian is going to be totally beautified and purified before Jesus returns? No. Because there will be a true church and a false church. And the true church is a remnant. And the reason why this is important to understand is because everyone who is the true bride of Christ, it's, it's actually a pretty small number of people. That's why Jesus said those who enter in the kingdom of heaven is a small number. It's a narrow gate, right? So there aren't actually a whole lot of people that we're waiting on or that Jesus is waiting on because the true church is a remnant anyway. And every single one of us can be a part of what God uses to accelerate his end times plan for the church by just taking my own personal life all of us need to think this way, that we go home, we prioritize our relationship with him, we let him make us into that stock of grain he made us to be, we let him shape us, mold us, conform us to the image of Christ, and if we're a bride that's ready, then the life we live inspires other Christians to do the same, and that's what he wants for every single one of us. I had a conversation with a, um, it was a couple on a bench Loring Park, Minneapolis. Corinne was there with me. And I had this really cool conversation. This is what I'm going to conclude with. Really cool conversation with these two, two people that they, they really, they, they did seem like, at least, just great people. They had genuine hearts. They were authentic. They both claimed they were Christians very enthusiastically. And in fact, the, um, the lady that was sitting on this bench, they were married, husband and wife. This lady pulls out her iPhone. And she tells us that last week, somebody came up to her to pray for her while they were sitting out somewhere. And she said, now you guys come up to me. And, then, and so I said to her, God's probably trying to get through to you. you know? And she's like, yeah. And she pulls out her iPhone and records us and wants to get a video of, of us talking to them. And it was, it was really cool. But then I, we started hearing about their lives. And it was <laughs> funny because they, they both were cussing up a storm, like F-bombs every sentence. And they both had a cigarette, and they were both very enthusiastic about their Christianity. But then you looked at how they talked. It was like, counterfeit Christian. Now, they may have genuinely put their faith in Jesus. And many of us would say, you know, if they died, they probably would go to heaven because they'd thrown themselves on the mercy of God, and they've trusted in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. I understand that. So I had this conversation with them. Now, this is not, when I, when I encounter these, these kinds of people, I don't just try to go through you know, Romans Road, have them pray the prayer of salvation, because that's not what these people needed. It's not. My job was to show them, look, here's what real Christianity is, because it's helping them grow into a stock of wheat that distinguishes them from the tear. Until they're a bride that's ready, Jesus can't come yet. And so we had this conversation with them, and I was telling them about how Christ is the, the perfect picture of salvation. Jesus lived a life that defined being saved. So when we say this person is saved, that doesn't mean they've put their faith in Jesus. A saved person is someone who's conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus lived a saved life. And so I went on to explain to them how, 
You know, the Bible says that Jesus shed his blood to make you like himself, and the only standard you're to aspire to rise to is the standard that Christ set. And so I explained to them what Christianity is supposed to look like. And the, what was interesting is the one lady, there was a couple times when she kind of interjected and interrupted in this conversation, and the, the guy sitting next to her, he was just transfixed on me the whole time, really intently listening. And he ended up shushing his wife several times because he wanted to listen so much. And we walked away. We prayed for them at the end of this conversation. And I could tell that I had done my part. We had done our part. I explained to them, here's what you're called to. Here's what you're called to be. You can choose to accept that calling or not. And it, it's not about you know, trying to figure out whether or not they're going to heaven, because that's not the priority. The priority is that the world can look at them, see them as faultless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, see them very clearly as being, a distinct, as being distinctly different from counterfeit Christianity. That's the call for everyone. So whether you're talking to a person, a coworker, a family member, whatever, who already says they're Christian, I can't push aside someone who already names the name of Christ and say they're you know, I'm satisfied with what they believe and, you know, my job's done. No. That's not the way it's supposed to work. As soon as someone gets saved, that's just the first step. That's just the beginning. And so what God wants for your life and every person you have the opportunity to influence is that you prioritize being conformed to the image of Jesus. And when the world can look at you and see a distinct difference from counterfeit Christianity, you're a bride who's been made ready. And it's only a matter of time before Jesus returns. And when I am in that place where I can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming, that's the calling that's on the church because he gave us that honor and glory, that reputation given into our hands to properly represent the God we say we believe in. 